This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Top story, no doubt about it, uh, on this Tuesday President Trump ousting Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State. We just heard uh, from the outgoing Secretary of State. Let's bring in Max Baucus. He's former U.S. Senator and U.S. Ambassador to China under former President uh, Obama, former Democratic Senator from the state of Montana. And Max joining us uh, on the phone from Washington, D.C. Ambassador Baucus, nice to have you back with us. Uh, You know, it's interesting. Um, Here we go, another change, but this is a pretty high-level change for the White House. Uh, The significance of this news and also how it came down. Well, first, I'm impressed with the dignity uh, with which uh, Secretary Tillerson is uh, is announcing his departure. I know Rex Tillerson. I've known him for a good number of years. He's a fine man, uh, and he's he's a patriot. He really cares. Unfortunately, the fit just didn't work out. Um, He's an independent Texan. He speaks his mind, and um, he can't... Unfortunately, also being undermined a bit by um, by um, the White House, um, the children. It is it's very, very hard when you're a top government official to be working in the White House and know that you know, that you're, you're, the children of the president uh, are conducting shadow diplomacy, and it undermines you. It's very, very hard. Well, you know what's interesting? So can, can I just ask you, though? It's interesting because President Trump was at about a week ago or so in a press conference, talked about how he likes to have people with different perspectives. He likes to have kind of this debate uh, and this kind of discussion, and he says, I listen to it all, and then I make up my mind. But apparently he he doesn't necessarily really like when maybe somebody doesn't agree with his policies. <laughs> Well, um, that seems to be the case in, in significant respect, although I think with Secretary Tillerson, just the chemistry just is not right. He may not only uh, have a different point of view, like, say, on Iran um, or maybe in climate change, but the, the chemistry between the two, the president and the secretary, just, just wasn't what it needed to be. Now, he, the secretary, didn't help matters any with his um, public comments about the president. He's being undermined by the president. He mm-hmm. kind of let it be known that he didn't like that. You know, when you're working for somebody, generally, whether it's the, you're the secretary of state or the president or, or whoever you are, you got to work work for the boss. You've got to know his boss. And you don't publicly say anything that undermines the boss. You just don't do that. You're part of the team. Either you sign up or you don't. And he kind of tried to do it both ways, and you just can't do it. Now, it is true he's now gone with Pompeo. Pompeo is somebody he's very close to. It's a, I think he and Pompeo really don't disagree with much of anything. Uh, it also shows the, <laughs> the value, the proximity of power. Pompeo, I know him a lot, I know him very well, but he's been briefing the president virtually every day on intelligence matters. And when you go to the White House, you see the president every day. Uh, you get to know the guy personally. He gets to know you personally. And I think that's one of the main reasons why I selected Pompeo. Well, that's interesting, too, right? As CIA director Mike Pompeo did have an audience with the president first thing in the morning, right, when you're fresh, when you're thinking about things, and that's who you get to talk with. In addition to that, um, Pompeo really, um, he, he really was kind of played the, didn't play the president. That's too strong. But he, he, he knows how to please the president. Mm-hmm. And I, I think he, uh, therefore, was in a position to cement the relationship pretty well. And Trump likes Pompeo as a consequence. 
I am curious too. It's like, you know, when you have a battle, you know, or the kids are fighting and you're like, okay, just don't show the relatives. You know, we're going, <laughs> once we leave the house, just, just come right, on everybody, exactly. get along. Yeah, that's true. Un- right. un- unfortunately, when you have changes at the cabinet level or anything within an administration, it's covered. And I am curious how this plays on the global stage. Well, I don't think it plays very well. Um, I think um, in most countries, including China, Tillerson is regarded as as a as a statesman, uh, mm-hmm. as somebody has gravitas, as somebody who's got his head screwed on straight, and feet firmly planted on the ground, somebody they like to deal with. Um, <clears throat> but even though they knew that um, he was sometimes undermined by the president, now there's a change. Uh, different countries have to adapt to the change. Who is the new Secretary of State? Who is this guy, Michael Pompeo? How do we deal with him? How is the State Department going to be different? What are the lines of communications going to be? Do we Can we deal with the State Department, or do we have to deal with the NSC and the White House? It's just all these – a change like this creates all these questions. It's going to have to be resolved. It doesn't help. Um, we need – you know – Take a country like China. There's such continuity in China. Right. They think so strategically, so long-term. And here we in the United States, my gosh, we're short-term, we're ad hoc, we're even more short-term now with all the changes we're making at the top. You know, it's. I was just going to bring that up with you, that I feel like with all of um, this instability and volatility that's going on, you know, in some ways it could be an effective strategy and kind of unnerving and, and putting all of our, you know, uh, global or other global leaders kind of on edge, like, okay, now what are we dealing with? At the same time, though, you have, as you said, said President Xi in China cementing his role. Uh, we don't know, you know, for it seems as long as he wants at this point, right? And and doing that long-term planning and strategy within China, you have Vladimir Putin uh, facing another election expected to win again. And I just feel like, you know, how worried do we have to be as citizens of a country where there is so much instability? I think it's concerning. Um, it's quite concerning. Um, you know, not only business, then, but countries um, abhor uncertainty. They want predictability. They want stability. They want to kind of know who they're dealing with, um, whatever, whether it's uh, the president or whomever. And when all this turmoil, all this change, causing so much uncertainty, is harmful. It just it it doesn't mm. help us. I hope now at this point, um, you know, the new Secretary of State, if he gets confirmed, and by the way, that's going to be a bruising confirmation process, mm. which is going to slow things down, as well as the new CIA director, um, uh, uh, Gina Haspel. Uh, that's going to be a bruising confirmation process, which adds more uncertainty all the way around. We just got to settle down as a country, get our act together, a little stability, a little continuity, and, and, and think carefully about how we deal with the world. This America first approach really isn't helping either because it's it's a it causes other countries to start to look elsewhere to form alliances and wages allegiances with other countries that's not helping well and with with that thinking uh, you know you've got now white house chief economist gary Cohn. he's gone secretary of state rex tillerson gone um should we anticipate that the prospects of a trade war are more likely than not because uh those gary Cohn and rex tillerson were both people who were favorable to free trade on the surface, that was on the surface that would seem to be the case, with with, with Gary Cohn gone and um, and uh, Mike Pompeo, frankly, agreeing with the president on a lot of trade issues. So I, I think you know, on the surface, um, there could be more trade friction. I hope not. 
I hope that the president and his team sit down and say, okay, sure, we have problems with various countries, specifically with China, but let's find a, a, a comprehensive, even-handed mm-hmm. way to deal with China um, where we explain to China we, we they Chinese can't keep going on like that, but let's find a way to sit down with them and explain to them actions we're going to take if they do continue. Right. Slapping on these tariffs, you know, make, issuing all these tweets is not a good way to conduct trade policy. All right. We got to run. Uh, Max, thank you so much. Uh, former Ambassador Max Baucus, former U.S. Senator as well, and former Democratic uh, Senator, as I mentioned, from Montana, joining us uh, on the phone from Washington, D.C. Yeah, well, the great U.S. inflation scare, folks, eh, 2018 may be over for now, at least. U.S. consumer prices in February, not too hot, not too cold, maybe just right. Here with a look at the uh, latest read on inflation, Tom Essay is founder of the Sevens Report. That's a daily uh, succinct asset class overview modeled after morning trade notes that uh, trading desks get every trading day, just kind of all the news that they need to know. Tom joining us on the phone in New York. All right, Tom, so you're putting out your note in the morning. Let's just think, what did you say? about inflation, or lack thereof. Uh, lack thereof, exactly. It was a pretty tame report, Carol. I mean, the, the it didn't cause a big rally like we saw on Friday because, frankly, after the wage number, markets expected a, t- a tame report. But the takeaway is this. Clearly, inflation is rising, so investors need to be positioned for that as we go forward. But based on the last two reports, it's not rising fast enough that it's going to materially change the Fed's outlook. We're not going to get a hawkish scare. It looks like the taper tantrum uh, of, of 2018, the, the inflation scare tantrum, is over for now. Is this one of those things, Tom, wow, how lucky are we? No, seriously, yeah, um, you know what I mean? Yeah. If you think about, here we are 10 years after the crisis and counting, uh, who would have thought that, yep, we'd maybe like a little bit more economic growth, but... It isn't as bad as it could have been. No, not at all. I mean, it's it's Goldilocks, and and that's what uh, in the in the title of our report on Monday, our, it was Goldilocks Strikes Back, mm-hmm. because now we're seeing growth pick up a little bit. The ISM non-manufacturing PMI was good. Inflation appears to be you know just just easing off the accelerator a little bit, but longer term, investing for inflation is something frankly, none of us have done in a decade. All right. uh, there's a whole crop of financial advisors out there that don't even know how to position for inflation. It's just in the textbook. So we do need to refresh our brains a bit. Yeah. We need to make sure we're positioned for it because uh, it is coming. Well, what's interesting, too, is I feel like, you know, this is a we're at a point where we could miss something really important. And I guess, mm-hmm. you know, we talked about this, uh, I don't know, about a week ago or so that, you know, People have coming off of, or just before the financial crisis, people were saying, well, earnings were going to continue to grow and blah, 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 blah. And then, of course, they fell apart. So we don't always get it right. So what do we need to be, I don't know, what would you be cautioning traders about right now? What is the, you know, what is the big unpredictable thing out there? What's the black swan, perhaps? Well, I... Number one, you're absolutely right. Earnings growth continues until all of a sudden it doesn't, right? And, and, and just because earnings estimates for next year are significantly higher, we all know that doesn't mean that it's actually going to occur. I think if you see some sort of a violent movement in yields, if we're talking about sort of black swans, right now Treasury yields are consolidating the, the rise we've seen so far in 2018. But 
that is a very, very overbought market on a longer-term basis. None of us have seen a bond bear market in three decades. We don't know how investors are going to react, especially in the age of algorithms, uh, risk parity funds. Is there a chance that we could see uh, you know, kind of a runaway rise in yields in some point in 2018, 2019 that could cause people to really get nervous? Uh, yes, I think there is a chance that could happen. It's something we all need to watch for. We do. And you know what's interesting, too? You sent over some research, and you said, I do not think White House drama will be a material market negative until we see, one, Mattis or Kelly resign. So you're not worried about what happened with Rex Tillerson? No. Uh, I mean, I, th- I think if we want to get worried about it, we can say, well, what does this mean for Iran, for the Iran nuclear deal? Uh, what does this mean sort of periphery for geo- geopolitical relations? But frankly, all of the scares so far with the Trump administration, and there have been many, but they, they've all turned out to be more bark than bite. However, if you see uh, Mattis or Kelly resign, the market really views them as sort of the adults in the room, uh, you know, to, to, so to say. If they were to leave or be fired, I think that, that markets would sort of wake up and say, well, we don't really know, you know exactly now how far this administration wants to go in one direction or the other. It would breed uncertainty. I think that could cause a further pullback in stocks. All right. So let's get back to fundamentals, because right now we've got stocks a little bit lower, but we've had quite a bounce back. We were marveling yesterday. Mm-hmm. If we just took a look at the NASDAQ, it is up. Uh, it was up about 10 percent, I think, yesterday. Now it's still up about 9.2 percent. We have seen yep. a tremendous bounce back, particularly in the tech sector. And I think if you drill down to like the NASDAQ 100, it's even more um, notable. Um, What is it that you focus on fundamentally in this market environment? Well, I think that, that, number one, in tech, the reason we have seen money funnel so quickly back into tech is because it's, it's a safe play, so to say. Uh, and what I mean by that is that we have secular growth stories in tech with semiconductors, Internet of Things. Uh, you, you have Internet companies, massive Internet companies, growing revenues. There's growth, there is growth there, but they're also highly liquid names. You can get out of them quickly, and they're very positively correlated to the market, they've got a beta over than one. So when you're a portfolio manager and you say, hey, I think we're out of the woods here, I think we should get back into the market, those super cap tech names, semiconductors, internet, inter- the large internet names are where capital flows. I think that, that, that's a continu- that is a trend that can continue over the coming weeks. Tech is a leading indicator of this market, and the fundamentals in the industry and in that sector are good. Can you believe it's only Tuesday? No. no. <laughs> and we've got a Fed coming next Wednesday, too. I mean, it's, you know, 2018 has already uh, been a lot more difficult than all of 2017 was. I think we should prepare for it. Right. And it's only early March. All right. Tom Essay, thank you so much. He is founder of The Sevens Report. Trade wars are bad, but President Trump's steel and aluminum tariffs won't have much direct impact on on the U.S. economy. That is, unless the situation escalates. That's according to a new survey conducted by Bloomberg News. Our next guest says, though, there are implications for emerging economies. Luis Mizell is co-founder, senior managing director at LM Capital Group. They've got $5 billion in assets under management. Joining us on the phone from San Diego. So, all right, this is what I think we're all trying to figure out, right? He signed... Um, these tariffs into effect. We've got a few days before they still do go into effect. We're starting to hear about exemptions, possible exemptions. Emerging economies, where do they stack up maybe on the exemption list? 
The major concern, Carol, is that you never know what's going to come next. The exemptions on uh, aluminum and steel are one thing, but what's going to happen if if the next one is on plastics and the next one is on wheat and the next one is somewhere else? So emerging economies depend a lot on the export of not only manufactured goods but on the commodities, and not knowing what to expect is what's creating the havoc in the emerging world. Okay, so I'm thinking about for investors who are trying to figure their way through it. What is your thoughts, what is your advice when it comes to emerging markets here? Well, right now you have to be careful. One thing is if you're investing in stocks and bonds, or one, another thing is if you're thinking of brick and mortar. Mm-hmm. I think brick and mortar right now is on hold. It has to be defined what's going to happen next. In terms of the opportunities, they're still in equities. They're cheaper than the emerged markets, so there are still good opportunities. In a very volatile market, you're going to still be able to make a lot of money. In terms of bonds, you have to be just careful that they have the capacity to generate the resources to pay back the debt. And if it's only goods that are subject to tariffs, you should take a second look. Okay. Um, And, you know, when we think about Canada and Mexico and specifically, right, we've had those NAFTA negotiations going on for some time. We've heard about exemptions. Um, What's the play there? Well, NAFTA is probably stronger right now than what happens with tariffs. I think President Trump is using the tariffs as a wedge in the negotiations and the fact that Mexico and Canada are the two largest exporters of steel to the U.S. do make a difference. The two of them together have 25% of the exports. So without Mexico and Canada, the the bite of the tariffs is much lower. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's just another thing thrown in into the negotiation. All right, Luis, I mean, you've taught at Harvard, and I'm just thinking if you were sitting down with a student class and trying to make sense out of everything that's happened in the last week with the, the tariffs that were were signed uh, into effect by the president. Um, also watching, let's let's roll into it, the news today of Rex Tillerson um, out as Secretary of State. We just heard from him moments ago. You know, what do you what would you be saying to them? What would you be saying that we need to understand in terms of the implications for global economies, for global financial markets? You know, President Trump came out as being the business president, and he's not proving to be so. Uh, Tillerson was somebody that the belief was that he was pro-business, he came from the business world, and all of a sudden he's gone. So the emerging economies right now have to be very, very careful how they trade with this situation. Mm-hmm. They, have, they cannot complain too hard because the 800-pound gorilla, when he gets upset, it's very worrisome. So you have to be very nice, smile, and go back home and say, how can I respond to these situations? I think that eventually the intelligent reaction will be, not to start a trade war. A trade war is a lose-lose for everybody. So I think you have to keep a low profile right now, and you have to say, let's wait to see how this develops. Well, the other 800-pound gorilla, I might argue, is China. And so, you know, are we at risk as a nation, the United States, by alienating emerging economies and others, and China will be right there very happily to pick up the slack? 
where it's an 800-pound gorilla that's smiling all the way to the bank. Yeah. You know, they would love to see the U.S. isolated, and they would. this would open up a lot of markets for them. I think that if the idea is to punish China, we're going about the wrong way because we're just creating a situation. Pulling out from the Kyoto Agreement and from the Paris Agreement is another way. All of a sudden, China is the leader in the environment. So instead of hurting China, we're making them stronger. What's going to happen if tomorrow in their, road, in their Silk Road they don't buy equipment from, from a Caterpillar or from Deer? They're going to be buying it from Kubota in Japan. So what we're doing is creating very, very powerful enemies that we don't need. I mean, the U.S. is definitely the financial leader of the world. It should be judicious. It should be very, very intelligent in the way he takes advantage of that position. So since – I'm trying to think where do we go back to, but certainly over the last couple of weeks, it's also been a volatile year um, – on the equity side of things, but I'm just curious in terms of investments, particularly what changes, if any, have you made this year uh, as you watch things unfold politically uh, in regards to the financial markets and in regards to uh, the global economy and really the global monetary policy outlook? What we've done is following what's happening in the U.S. market with interest rates. We're a fixed income manager. So we've shortened duration and we've gone with the stronger players in the emerging markets. You know, the very strong companies that have a backlog, that have a quality product that are really global, are not going to hurt from this. You know, they're going to move accordingly. It's a chess game and they're going to move their pawns in the right direction. So there are still very good opportunities. It's one of the few asset classes where you can still make money. The volatility has not been too, too strong. There's not been the traditional risk on, risk off, as we've seen in a very volatile market. So there are opportunities, but we've definitely shortened duration and improved the quality of the portfolios. Any specifics that you could share with us? Uh, it's fun to talk in generalities uh, or generalizations, but <laughs> I always like to drill down and get a little bit more specific, whether it's uh, an emerging market or a certain company within an emerging market. Sure. Let me give you two examples. Uh, Bimbo in Mexico, the largest bread company now, is 56% of their revenues come from the first world. They are the leading producer of bread in about 20 countries, and they generate about five times the dollars they need to pay back their debt. So for them, I mean, this really doesn't change the game at all. Second one, Embraer in Brazil, the airplane manufacturer, backlog of six years. If there's any problem with their currency, it's in their favor because they produce interest and selling dollars. And now even Boeing is looking into buying a piece of them. So you're still getting a nice spread over similar U.S. paper, but you are in a position that you are not taking much risk. Okay, so Bimbo, was it the first one? Yes. Grupo Bimbo and then Embraer. Uh, good to get some time. Interesting. Uh, Luis Mizell, he is co-founder and senior managing director at LM Capital Group, joining us uh, on the phone from San Diego. Well, yes, indeed, you can make 
something stop. And that's what we've seen with the Broadcom-Qualcomm merger. Ian King is our U.S. Semiconductor Networking reporter. He's been tracking the ups and downs of the Broadcom-Qualcomm saga for a while now. The latest chapter of this story, as you all well know, last night, President Trump blocking Broadcom's plan taker of Qualcomm. So now what? Let's ask Ian and our Matt Larson, litigation analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, both of them in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Ian, it's a story that keeps on giving. So, done. This is it. It's hard to see a way back at this point. Matt and I were just talking about this before we came to talk to you, Carol, and um, there really isn't a precedent for overturning a decision like this of, of, of CFIUS. And, you know, they've been told in explicit terms that this is not going to happen and they're not allowed to work on this deal anymore. Broadcom hasn't officially given up yet, hasn't officially said we're going to stop doing this, but at this point, it's really difficult to see how there's a way forward for them. How do you guys make sense of kind of just how the things played out, right? I think of Huck Tan uh, with President Trump saying they're going to, you know, move their headquarters and everything here to the United States. And then a, shortly thereafter, we got news that Broadcom was going after Qualcomm. Um, <laughs> how do we make sense of it? And, and I just, you know, I wonder about the politics or, I mean, there shouldn't be any politics in this, right? But nonetheless, what do you guys, well, how do you make sense I mean, of it's that? definitely surprising, Carol. I mean, yeah. up until, I mean, yesterday afternoon, Hock Tan was in the Pentagon explaining himself. Apparently, he thought it was an exploratory meeting that, you know, he would have more time to go back and, and, and try to turn the tide around, try to explain his way out of this. And then several hours later, the, you know, the White House is out there saying no more. It's unbelievable. Hey, Matt, come on in on this conversation. So now what? What's left? Okay, what happens next for Qualcomm? Because they've, they've got a lot of stuff still on their plate. Yeah, so for right now, Qualcomm, uh, I think all focus will be shifted over to uh, trying to restore their licensing business. Uh, in, the, in the backdrop of all this, and one of the reasons that the Broadcom takeover was so attractive for uh, disgruntled Qualcomm shareholders is that the licensing unit has taken a huge hit by Apple um, refusing to pay royalties. Uh, so that's kind of front and center right now is can they can they bring the QTL, uh, Qualcomm technology licensing segment, back up to speed? Um, can they resolve their feud with Apple, uh, sign up a new deal with Huawei, and kind of move forward with that high-margin revenue? I think that's where shareholders are going to be looking next. That, and, and go Carol, ahead. No, go ahead. Matt just used a very, yeah. very important phrase, disgruntled Qualcomm shareholders. Hmm. You know, As our reporting showed in the run-up to the shareholder meeting that never was, Broadcom was ahead. Broadcom was going to get a mandate from Qualcomm shareholders to take over their company. Clearly, that was a vote of no confidence to the management, and they're now going to have to deal with that and live with that, and that obviously puts a lot of pressure on that management, which, as Matt just explained to you, was already under pressure. Well, that's good. You know, that's a, right. Exactly. So, Ian, I mean, from your perspective in following the company, I mean, what else? I mean, they've got to deal with the royalty issues. I mean, this is what they do, right? This is a big part of what that company does. What else might be next for Qualcomm? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of things here. They've put out some very clear targets. You know, we will earn this amount by executing on this market. You know, 5G is a great opportunity for us. So they've effectively pinned a very specific target on their foreheads, which if they don't live up to, you know, shareholders are not, not happy with them anyway and are clearly not going to stand for this. So this isn't the end of the pressure that's on Qualcomm right now. That, that's clearly the case. Throw on top of that, I just think it's interesting that, you know, Intel then all of a sudden was rumored to be going, you know, okay, well, we'll, we'll go after, um, we'll go after Broadcom, right? That's what they said. Um, I mean, what does that tell, like, what hand did Intel kind of all of a sudden show in all of this? 
Yeah, I mean, we have to be um, very careful there. That was reporting by the Wall Street Correct. Journal. Then subsequently, you know, we, we added what we could to that story. And what we added to the story was, of course, Intel's corporate development team is looking at all possibilities, gaming them out. But don't get too carried away with this one. Intel already has a couple of acquisitions that it's trying to digest. And um, yes, they might be thinking about this and considering it, but that doesn't mean they're about to press the button and send Hoctan a letter saying we're coming to buy you. A little loose at that point. A lot to a lot to be done before something like that moves forward. Hey, Matt, what's kind of the timeline that we need to think about when it comes to um, the royalties and the licensing dispute with Apple? Yeah, sure. So that that dispute is a global licensing dispute. There are upwards of 44 individual lawsuits across eight different countries. What we're looking at is some potential decisions coming out of uh, China and Germany first, either at the end of the second quarter or early second half of this year. Um, There's an international trade commission suit where Qualcomm is looking to block uh, the import of um, non-Qualcomm chip iPhones. Uh, that goes to trial in June, and a decision is expected in September. So we should see this dispute start to uh, to take form kind of mid-end of this year. What's this? Yeah. Sin- yeah, go ahead, Ian. I mean, Matt's being modest here. He, <laughs> he managed to just reduce an enormously complicated situation to something relatively intelligible. <laughs> and just to promote a bit of research he did on for Bloomberg Intelligence, he, he did a lovely diagram which maps out when all of this is coming. So I would encourage people to look at that. Yeah, it is nutty. Um, and there's a lot, a lot still to uh, come, certainly for Qualcomm. Hey, guys, thank you so much. Ian King, U.S. Semiconductor and Networking Reporter at Bloomberg News, along with our Matt Larson, litigation analyst, Bloomberg Intelligence. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Here, 11 minutes, four seconds away from the closing bell on this Tuesday. Let's get some thoughts on this financial market environment. Jack Ablin is back with us, founding partner, chief investment uh, advisor at Crescent Wealth Advisors, joining us on the phone in Chicago. Crescent is a registered investment uh, advisor. Nice to have you back. Can you believe it's only Tuesday? Can you believe it's only Tuesday? No, it's a lot, <laughs> a lot going on for just a couple of days. Well, I got to start there because it's obviously it's big news. Um, I got some tweets saying, oh, my God, it's like you think the world's falling apart. I don't think the world's falling apart, but this is certainly a different administration. And I think our Marty Shanker uh, of Bloomberg, our chief content officer, said it really well earlier on Bloomberg TV. He said President Trump is doing exactly what he said he would do, operate a non-traditional White House Turmoil is what he thinks is normal operating procedure, and we should just get used to it. That's it. I guess so. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's it's hard to believe that you can get any kind of a policy consistency with that much turmoil, that much turnover uh, at the top of the House. But we did get a tax overhaul. Things are, are getting done. Regulations are getting rolled back. I mean, how do you make sense of it? You've got to make investment decisions for your uh, clients, Jack. You've seen a lot of market cycles. You and I have been talking for a long time. Um, how do you make sense of it? 
Well, you know, that's funny because you're right. I mean, we are data-driven just like the Fed, and we've got our dashboards that we track. And, you know, quite frankly, um, you know, tr- you know, personnel turnover at the White House is not one of the metrics that we track uh, historically. Um, you know, that said, we've, we had a great uh, inflation number this morning. Uh, that, I think, puts a lot of pressure, takes a lot of pressure off Jay Powell. Um, so I think the back, the fundamental backdrop is still very sound. Uh, credit is still abundant. Uh, I have not seen any lender, um, you know, pull back on any extension of credit to to their lower quality borrowers. So Mm -hmm. the fundamental picture is still pretty sound. Um, Obviously, the risks to the market, as we kind of articulated it at the beginning of the year, were any kind of big trade dispute. Well, we had a little, you know, foray into that uh, direction last week. and um, and the and this notion that the you know that the administration is hell bent on growing our economy at three or four percent. Now, three or four percent economy is great if our if our economy can handle it. If the mm. potential growth rate is three or four percent, problem is our potential growth rate is is maybe between two and two and a half percent, and that's mm. also uh, worrisome. So to try to throttle this, you know, two percent donkey into a 4% racehorse, uh, we can do it for a little while, but eventually we're going to run out of uh, capacity and have some inflation. That's a great point, right? And this is what we keep trying to get our head around, right? In terms of, we look at the unemployment picture, the labor picture, the unemployment rate really low. We're hearing more and more stories about companies competing for workers and having to raise wages, but not necessarily passing it along in their products and services that are being offered. So maybe it's not shown up in, shown up in inflation. But but eventually it will. Yeah, I mean, I think of, well, it, not necessarily. That's the interesting thing. If we, you know, if you look at our growth rate since the um, Great Recession, so this, this recovery growth rate, we've actually grown at around 2%. Mm-hmm. So as long as we're growing right at potential GDP, we could just continue on that escalator for a while without running out of capacity, uh, without pushing uh, uh, inflation higher and not having a you know the traditional quote unquote business cycle. Uh, it's only when we start to either borrow too much and and draw uh, demand from the future and bring it back to today, or just you know kind of run a little hot, then we start running out of capacity. Uh, and once we do that. You know, then then prices rise and we've got our business cycle back again. All right. So, what does it mean for investors? So, do you do you do you expect that that kind of what we've been seeing in terms of the financial markets, that let's just take the equity markets, that we continue to kind of go along, we continue to see increases, we get an occasional correction, and then we just continue to move upward. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I have to look at the under, you know, the fundamental underpinnings, and so far, so good. I would say the only area, um, you know, if we look at this uh, inflation report, now this is CPI inflation, so it's a little trickier. But if you look at overall inflation, the only capacity constraints we have right now is trucking, for the most part, widespread. Mm-hmm. Um, there aren't enough truck drivers. Truck. If you look at wages, for example, it's you know people that drive a commercial vehicles for a living, those wages are going up three and a half, four percent. There's just a shortage of these people. And, um, you know, and, and customers are paying a higher prices to move things around. So um, that there, are, there is a pinch point there. But other than that, we're really not seeing, um, 
you know, much, uh, much scarcity uh, that, that's out there to drive prices higher. Interesting. Got a favorite investment play right now? Well, here's the, you know, I, I can tell you theory versus practice. You know, I would say in this environment, if we are going to see a little more broader expansion, either here or abroad and so forth, then you would expect value-oriented investments. So those would be like financials, industrials, basic materials. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is worldwide. Should outpace uh, these mega cap growth, um, you know, uh, investments. Right. You know, and the fun, the funny thing about the, these mega cap growth, it's really somewhat of a defensive play from investors. Not this isn't really, uh, you know, head on, uh, headlong into risk. Okay. So it's a, it's a really interesting mix going on there. Jack Ablin, thank you so much. Founding partner, chief investment officer at Crescent Wealth Advisors, on the phone in Chicago. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.